there's this uh, YouTube channel uh, on the internet, um, and I, I think it's called Five uh, Celebrities Who Surprise Fans in Cars. I think that's the, the channel. So there's a series of videos that are about five different kinds of celebrities who dress up as Uber or cab drivers, taxi drivers. They pick up fans, and they're disguised. And then they take them to their various, you know, the restaurants they're Ubering and getting a taxi to. But at some point along the way, in the drive, they kind of take off their mask. They, uh, they, they reveal their true identity to the fans. And the fans all, of course, freak out. And they scream and they yell all kinds of profane things. So maybe don't watch this with young kids or watch it alone uh, where no one can hear you or have earbuds on. But it's like Justin Bieber, Jimmy Kimmel, Demi Lovato, Joe Jonas, Nick Jonas, um, LeBron James. They all do this. They disguise themselves. They reveal themselves at some point in the drive. And all the fans freak out. And all of them, what's fascinating to me when you watch this, and you should, it's really funny. Um, All the fans... Uh, have one thing in common that you know it's there it's a variety of ages so you have people in their 70s that are kind of freaking out by seeing LeBron James in front of them and then there are little children you know six or seven year olds and so they are they are kind of uh, have this panicked joy that's that's very unique to them Uh, but they also have something in common and, and it's this they don't really have any words to say like, they don't have anything coherent to say. All they can do is scream and shout and say a few, like, four-letter words at the top of their lungs um, and ask for an autograph. But other than that, it's pretty incoherent. Um, I think in a fallen world, um, oftentimes, there, there are seasons of life or circumstances in our lives, whether it's a big decision that's around the corner that we're confused about or a terminal illness in our family of someone that we love, or a season of financial distress. There are moments in a fallen world that just punch, the gut, the, the, punch us in the gut and knock the wind out of us. We don't have the words to say, to kind of articulate the nuances of what is going on, how dark it is, how painful it is. We know that we are to, to bring our cares and anxieties to God, but how do we do that if we don't have the words? We don't, I don't even know, you know, it's, you might be thinking, I don't even know how to talk to my wife about what's going on with me and how stressed I am. I, I definitely don't know how to pray to God about it. Psalm 25 is a psalm to give us the words when we have the life kind of punched out of us by a fallen world. It gives, psalm 25 is giving us the words when we don't have the words to say, to pray to God. This is God's word. You can find this in your bulletin, or uh, you can turn there in your Bibles. This is Psalm 25. This is God's word, and he has spoken to us because he loves us. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed or wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. 
Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. It's the word of God for the people of God. Let me pray and ask for his help. Lord, we do come to you and we come to you humbly. We acknowledge our need for you to speak to us. Lord, we do live in a fallen world and life in a fallen world is messy. We oftentimes, even in our what your, your scriptures teach us about the fall and its effects. It's very hard to put to words how dark it can be sometimes. Thank you that your word, particularly the Psalms, the, the prayer book, the hymnal of Israel, they give us the words to pray to you. Thank you for giving us the words. Lord, help us uh, now as we consider your word. Uh, Lord, just be with us, we pray through Christ. Amen. So before we, we look at this and consider it, uh, just to remind you, the Psalms, uh, as, as we've been looking at them, they were Israel's hymn book, God's people. In the Old Testament, they had a hymnal. Their version of the Trinity hymnal or the Baptist hymnal was the Psalter, the 150 Psalms in the middle of your Old and New Testaments. And in their corporate worship services, they would sing these songs to effect change in their hearts and on their minds that they might live in God's world, in a fallen world, as God's people in very particular ways. How to lament sin. How to seek wisdom from God. How to celebrate His law. How to repent of our own sin. That's the Psalms. They, they equip God's people, our minds and our hearts and our hands, to live life in a fallen world. To follow Him as God's people. And so the, the Psalms, and in particular Psalm 25 this morning, Psalm 25 wants to shape us in a very particular way. To give us words when we don't have them in a fallen world. So the first thing that we're going to see, we're going to see two main things here in Psalm 25. The first is that uh, in a fallen world we must ask God for help. We, just, we, we have to ask Him for help. And second, we have to trust God with the future. So asking God for help and then trusting God with the future. But the first aspect of God asking God for help, that's what we're going to look at first. The first aspect is, is taking on a posture of humility. 
If we're going to ask God for help, we have to own the fact that we actually need help and that we're needy. Look at verse 9 again. He leads the humble in, in what is right and teaches the humble his way. So seeking God's face, asking him for help, we must assume a posture of humility. Notice that the, psalm, the psalmist is crying out to God from a, a place of confusion, of need. He's being honest about his need. This is actually, there's all kinds of psalms in 150. This is a lament psalm, like Psalm 13. Uh, how long, O Lord? It's a lament psalm where God's people look at their circumstances, they see the brokenness, they get real honest with God about it, and they say, how long is this going to happen? How long? But in doing so, the psalmist isn't just saying how long, as it were, but he's saying, I need your help. I need your help. He's not saying, you know, I'm usually okay on my own. This is David speaking, so I'm the king of Israel. I've been leading God's people for a while now. But I'm going to need a little bit of help now. You've been governing the world and everything. But come intervene just for a second and help me because I need it now. But I'm usually okay on my own. It's not David. It's not David at all. Asking God for help starts with owning a posture of humility in which you know you don't have all the answers. You don't have all the wisdom. You need help. The Christian life is not one of self-sufficiency. It's one of dependency upon God. So I bought a, a lawnmower, a push mower, um, probably six or seven months ago um, after we bought our house, uh, after uh, we just ran Will Kendrick into the ground and, uh, in cutting our grass. I was like, I, you know, I need to give Will a break and go get my own lawnmower. Um, and so I get one, and I carve out like a half a day for this to put it together and to cut it and to get it all nice and neat before Ivy comes home. You know, she's going to drive around the driveway and pull in, and it's going to just be this beautiful lawn, and I'm going to be so proud of myself. So this is the sort of, you sense the idealism here. You know it's going to be a turn for the worse. I get it. I, t- I take my time, and I was like, I, I can do this. I- I've- I'm going to be patient with myself. I have the instructions. The- everything in Spartanburg is three minutes away. I bought this, you know... So I can, if I panic, I can go get help. But it was, it was very clear about 30 minutes in, I'm not going to be okay on my own with this thing. I'm just not. I was an English major in undergrad. I have to call my rocket scientist father-in-law for help oftentimes. I need help. But self-sufficiency in that moment was intoxicating to me. It was so attractive. I mean, there was no way that I was going to be able to cut grass that day, much less when I, but before Ivy gets home from work. If I buy into self-sufficiency and I don't ask for help. So I make the embarrassing call of shame to my neighbor across the street who I knew would be home. He comes over and it actually was a complicated problem. It wasn't just like a thing that I should know about. Um, He comes over and he helps me and we're off at the races. And it was all good. Y'all, the Christian life is not one of self-sufficiency. It's one of dependence upon God. And dependence upon God's people. I mean, it's all, I need help from the Lord, from your spirit, from your word, from the means of grace, from your people. I mean, if, if, you, if you had it all together, why, why do we need to be here in the first place this morning? Why do we need his word? Why do we need to go to the table in a few minutes if we are not needy? But I do want to ask you, I mean, do you know... Do you know, like not theologically, but do you, do you trust that God doesn't expect you to have it all together? 
And he's actually, God never invites us to pretend to, to be something that we're not. He doesn't ask us to pretend that we do have it all together. This is the king of Israel who doesn't have it all together. And this isn't a be like David sermon. This is just, he's modeling for us dependency before the Lord. So the first, first aspect of asking God for help, we have to embrace a posture of humility. The second aspect of asking him for help is seeking his ways, seeking God's ways. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. So asking God's, God's help after we've embraced a posture of humility naturally leads into, I need your wisdom because I don't have it. So teach me the ins and outs of your law and your word and your spirit and what the fruit of the spirit might look like in my everyday life. Teach me your ways. Why? Why do we ask that? Not just because we're needy. We discussed that. Because God's ways are the ways. They're the ways for us to flourish. They're the ways for us to have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. They're the ways to experience real joy, real satisfaction, real flourishing, real Christ-likeness in a fallen world. Verse 8 tells us that God's ways are good and upright. Verse 9 says that he's our teacher. Verse 10 says that his paths and ways are paths of love and faithfulness. And even more than that, brothers and sisters, his ways aren't impersonal. He's our father. Remember that. Therefore, our good. They're for our good. They're not just rules for us to keep. They're for our good. David was profoundly aware of how bad he was left to himself. And so we have to understand this morning that embracing uh, God's uh, or embracing his help means embracing his ways and, and seeking his ways. I have three nieces and my middle niece uh, is taking violin lessons right now. And she is the cutest little girl I've ever seen. She has like really thick, uh, big curly hair. And she plays this little bitty violin. I just can't even take the cuteness. And she goes to violin lessons every week and has been doing this for a while. But what Joy, it's her name, what Joy does when she goes to her violin lessons every week. What she is saying in her action of her just going to violin lessons. She's saying, when it comes to violin, to the teacher... Your ways are the ways. When it comes to violin, your ways are the ways. So teach me. That's what she says. David got this dynamic in his posture of humility. That he doesn't have all the resources to go forward. Whether it's being Israel's king, repenting of his sin, celebrating his law, leading God's people in worship. God's ways are the ways to seek. I want to ask you, when you are confused, not if you're confused and disoriented in a fallen world, but when you are confused and disoriented by life and darkness in a fallen world, do you ask God's help and seek his ways? Do you own a pot? Is your gut reaction to seek God's ways or to get your planner out and add five more things to the to-do list to seek control? Which is essentially in kind of informally believing, in essence, that your ways are the ways. Where's your gut kind of heart reaction when you bump up against something in a fallen world? To seek God's ways or just kind of pull the bootstraps up a little bit higher and get after it with your own ways? I just want to ask you that. I need to be asked that. 
I want you to know this morning, and I want to invite you to believe that God wants to help you. He's not looking at you and your neediness and your lack of resources and saying, like, you know, if I could just find some people in the kingdom that had it all together, my kingdom would be on earth. I mean, that's just not what he's, that's not what he's saying. He loves to help you. He loves to help you because he's your father. And we can trust him. So Psalm 25 is inviting us all to ask God for help, embracing a posture of humility, and then seeking his ways. Now we're going to look at trusting God with the future. Trusting God with the future is the second thing that we see in the psalm. Look at verse 2 again. The psalmist is making it explicit that he's putting his trust in the Lord. And then in verse 14 and 15, look at this. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. He makes known to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. He will pluck my feet out of the net. Do you see that future tense? He will pluck my feet out of the net. He's hoping in something for the future. The psalmist is inviting people that were singing this psalm in corporate worship and us in corporate worship this morning to trust God with the future. Now, you you might be asking yourself this morning whether, as you see the fallenness that we experience in a fallen world, how dark it can be, whether that's looking in on your own heart, the brokenness in your own families, our own city, when you look at Facebook for the 35th time uh, in, in an hour and you see just how we can't even talk to each other, how it's difficult for many of us because of broken relationships we can't even make eye contact with each other when we speak because there's resentment and bitterness in our hearts. Whatever it is, maybe you're looking at the brokenness and you're saying, you know, I don't really know how to trust God with the future. How can David do that? How can, how can you trust God with the future when everything seems so dark? Do you see how dark it is? Do you feel how dark this is? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Just look at my Twitter feed again. That's a good question. I think David was very honest about the brokenness that he saw. He's not ignoring that. He's not pretending that things are better than they are. It's safe to say when David wrote this psalm, he was so aware of brokenness in the world. He, you know, he didn't know how he was going to go forward in the life of Israel as he leads God's people. He didn't know the current status of You know, Israel's 401k. He didn't know that. He didn't know how he was going to go forward. So how can he trust God? Two ways that we see in this passage why we can trust God. First is God's presence and then God's faithfulness. God's presence and his faithfulness. Look at verse 14 at God's presence. It talks of the friendship of the Lord. Did you see that? The friendship of the Lord. Do you see God that way? The God... Not a distant deity or an angry football coach or principal. He draws near to you as your friend. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. The psalmist is celebrating the reality that those who have a relationship with God have a deeply personal relationship with God. It's a personal relationship. David can trust God with his future because because he can trust that God is with him. He's with him in the darkness. He's not leaving him in the dark. 
He's going into the future, no matter how dark that might be, with David. That's what David is banking on here. Because God draws near to those he loves, and he will never leave them. I've become convinced that for those of us as God's people, when we, when we suffer, when we go through seasons of darkness in a fallen world, I don't know if our, our default question is really, like, why is this happening? Like a problem of evil question. I don't think that's really my... I don't get real philosophical and I want to read about the problem of evil when I suffer. That's not what I do. I want to ask the question, and what I'm really wondering is, is God, is God with me in this? Is he really with me in this? Because it's really, really dark. And the good news is that he is. So we have a puppy, his name's Riggins, and he's a golden doodle with lots of energy. He's a year old. We take him on lots of walks, and we, he's great on a leash. He's not stressful at all on a walk, and you, we live on Fernwood Drive. You've probably seen us, uh, if you're on Fernwood, very often we go on two or three a day. So here's one thing that Riggins does every time we go on walks is, he, again, he's not really pulling us. He's great on a leash, but when he kind of notices something in front of him, if we're on Cottonwood Trail up the road from us, or other dogs are, are you know, locked up in yards and they're kind of barking at Riggins trying to provoke him. If there's some sort of something curious to him or uncertain about what's in front of him or around him, he doesn't bark at them. He, he doesn't really get distracted by them and want to walk toward them, whatever it is, if it's a squirrel or another dog or an unknown path. He actually will turn around as he's walking at me, almost as to say, like, you know, are, are you going to go in with me to this? Are, that's the way. And as soon as he looks at us, he keeps going. But he does it probably every two or three minutes. And it, it, every time he does this, it makes me think, like, well, actually, are you trying to do this to see if I'm still around and there's a leash on you because you really want to go chase the squirrel? That's probably what's going on. But at least where the way that I experience that, it's like what we want from God, when we see uncertainty in front of us and around us, and no matter how dark it is, it could be a really confusing decision around the corner or something really, really dark. Are you with me in this? That's what we're asking. Are you going with me into this? We can trust God with the future because of the refrain that we read in the scriptures. Don't fear, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And then Christ in John 10 with the Good Shepherd passage. No one can snatch you out of my hand. I'm with you. I'm not leaving. We can trust him because he's not going to leave. And maybe you've had people to leave you. Um, God won't leave you. I want you to believe that. We can also trust God with the future, not only because of his presence, he's not leaving, but also his faithfulness. Look at verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. The psalmist is banking on the fact that God made promises to be merciful and gracious to his people. And he's asking God, he's actually telling God to keep his promises. Let me nerd out for two seconds. The Hebrew verb for remember here, when, when he's saying, remember your mercy, your steadfast love, David is not saying, 
God, you made promises. You said something that one time. I want you to cognitively just remember that you said that that one time. Just acknowledge like you said that. That's not what he's doing. But actually, if you, if you study this word and what David is getting at here, he's saying, when he's saying remember, he's essentially asking God to act. He wants God to act, not just to cognitively remember, but to get in the situation. How long it's dark, come act because you said you would. That's what he's doing. And he's being bold in doing that. Again, he's not saying, look at how bad it is. Glance at me every now and then and remember you said it. He's saying, Lord, you've made promises to me and your people, to my ancestors. You kept promises to them. And if you don't act going forward, I don't have any hope. And if I don't have any hope, your people don't have any hope because I'm supposed to lead them, right? That's David. The only way forward out of this mess is if you act. The word you've probably heard from Justin at some point, the word steadfast love, that phrase in verse 7, that is a covenantal word that God Uh, It refers to God's covenant promises to his chosen people. And it's all over the Old Testament. Steadfast love. Remember your steadfast love. It's not just generic promises of not leaving. It's specific covenantal promises. It's covenantal promises. The only way forward is if you keep those promises. That's David and he's banking on that. And he's not being nostalgic. Oh, remember the good old days with Abraham and Moses and Noah? It's definitely not what he's saying. But he's resting and hoping in the future. He's trusting God with it. Because of God's faithfulness in the past. The covenant relationship and the covenantal history that God has been kind of keeping these covenant promises for a really long time. We can trust God with the future because of his faithfulness in the past. So uh, you know this about uh, especially NBA playoffs because of how much attention that gets when it comes around. But any kind of playoff in sports, whether that's college football playoff or NBA playoffs, World Cup, whatever it is, any sort of tournament setting, the intensity level of the play gets heightened very, very fast. And it can be very disorienting for new players, like rookie players. So Jason Tatum is a was a he's going into his second year in the in the pros. He's a Boston Celtics player. He went really really far into the NBA playoffs this year as a rookie. And I mean, he was 18, 19 years old. He had to get really disoriented, confused, and afraid of playing in front of that many people with heightened kind of intensity level with the most talented basketball players in the world. But here's the thing, though, especially in the NBA. I mean, with, with veterans in the NBA, no matter if it's LeBron James or people that have, been, that have been playing for it in two or three years, when they've been in the playoffs for a while, when the time comes for the playoffs, there's this kind of composure about them. This kind of belief, you know, we've been, we've been here before. You know, like we've just, we've done this before. We know what it feels like for defense to be a little bit more intense. For there be, you know, thousands of more people, and it gets to be so loud, I can't even hear myself think, much less shoot a free throw. I mean, there, there's a sense in which the veterans they say, "We've been here before." You know, as the people of God, 
we can say, no matter if you've been a Christian for a few months or a few decades, we can say as the people of God, because of God's faithfulness in the past, when we bump up against darkness in the world, we've been here before. We've been here before. This isn't our first rodeo. That's what we can say. So we can trust him, not only because of his presence, because of his faithfulness. And he's not going to stop. He's not going to stop. We can trust that. So this morning, we, we've come to terms with the fact that moments stretch us. There's moments in life that just they stretch us in ways that we don't even know how to put words to what's going on. And we certainly, maybe we don't know how to pray. Psalm 25, hopefully, has given us a structure, given us the words to pray, asking God for help, trusting him with the future. I, I want to highlight just a few kind of moments, kind of points of application. There's so much that we could say about this. I just want to say a couple of things. The first thing is this. We must resist self-sufficiency. We've hit on this, but the Christian life is not one where we have it all together. If that's the Christian life, why are we even here this morning? Like, we, let's just watch Netflix Like, we're here this morning because we are dependent upon God. That's the Christian life. So we have to renounce self-sufficiency. Next, we have to to be brutally honest with ourselves. Brutally honest with ourselves. So when we experience suffering and trial and we're stretched in a fallen world, I want to ask you this. This would be a very helpful question to ask yourself, for me to ask myself, when I'm stretched by life in a fallen world, whatever that is, to ask myself, what voices am I hearing right now? What messages am I hearing? Here's what I mean. There are all kinds of voices that we can hear during pain and suffering. And here might be a few. And we might hear these out in the culture, in our own kind of thought life, in our families, depending on the kind of family that we're in. I don't want to assume that family is a safe place for all of us in our relationships, whatever it is. Maybe some voices are saying, you know, God doesn't love you and he isn't with you in this. It's too dark. It's too dark. It's too bad. And the reason it's too bad, it's so dark right now, is because God isn't with you. He's left you. God's ways aren't for your good and they don't lead to flourishing. They're actually to pin you down And they're to strip you of your freedom and your individuality and your authenticity in 2018. Have you heard that voice before? So what lies do you hear during pain and suffering? Maybe you hear God's ways are not the ways to flourish through this, experience satisfaction and joy. So alcohol, pornography, and the approval of others and a tighter 401k and five more things on the to-do list, that will satisfy me. If that's you, and that's certainly me in a lot of ways, we have to be honest about this. We have to ask God for help. We have to ask each other for help, where we might be blind to what voices we might be hearing. Lastly, it's just this. We must embrace the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We must embrace the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Psalm 25, when they were singing this psalm, David, again, being a lament psalm, crying out how long, he was experiencing profound pain and suffering and anxiety. We don't know all the ins and outs of that, but we can speculate. 
And he's trusting the Lord and he asks him for help. We've seen that. Do you also notice there's this refrain in here? I wait for you. I wait for you all the day long. How can he say that? Because he knew that everything that he needed was found in God. He might not know how he was going to go forward. He's trusting God with it. But he doesn't know how God is going to connect these dots and keep him and bless him. There's uncertainty going forward for sure. But he knew he's trusting in his waiting. I wait for you all the day long because everything that I need in my past, in my present, in my future is in you. That's what he's doing. David was Israel's king. We've said that. After he wrote this song, they were singing it in their corporate worship services. And after corporate worship, they go back into their homes, into the marketplace. And the story of Israel continued. It went on. They went, God's people went into the uncertain darkness and God kept sustaining them. And in the New Testament, the story was continuing and we read about another king, don't we? We read about another king. We're introduced to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in his second letter to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul says this about this king, this Messiah. That he's gracious, but also that his grace is sufficient. That Jesus really is enough. That he's really enough. David knew the friendship of God, but he didn't see the whole picture, did he? He didn't see it. But we know more of the story. We know of Jesus becoming a baby, living a perfect life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. He is enough, brothers and sisters. I invite you to believe that for the first time or in a fresh way this morning. Now, the, when we ask God for help, um, and as God's people have been asking God for help in a fallen world for centuries... Jesus Christ is the, the, the profound yes. Jesus Christ is the profound and loud yes of the story of the scriptures. He actually can help us. He has in Christ. And that is good news. That yes, we do live in a fallen world and we're so touched by sin inside and out. But in Jesus Christ, all of Christ's blessings are yes and amen. And that is good news. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do give thanks to you this morning for your goodness, your grace that you have shown us in your son, Jesus Christ, in his, in his incarnation, his perfect life, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, the outpouring of his spirit. Lord, you love us so much. And I, I do acknowledge that many of us, we're just in different places this morning. We have different stories, different backgrounds. We are wired differently. You've made us with complex personalities. And we experience the fall in very particular ways. And you know how we experience it. You know where we're needy. You know where we need help, even when we don't know how to ask for it. Again, thank you for your word this morning, for giving us the words to pray to you and to seek you when we don't have them. Lord, I do ask that you would help us in a fresh way to trust you, to ask you for help, to trust you with the future because you have been faithful to your people for a really, really long time. Lord, be with us as we sing now. We celebrate 
your love and as we come to the table to celebrate that love as well. We pray through Christ. Amen.